Hi everyone, I'm Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 53 of KindredCast, a bi-weekly podcast featuring insights from dealmakers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. KindredCast is a production of Kindred Media powered by Liontree. Today, Jeremy Zimmer, the CEO and founding partner of United Talent Agency, or UTA, sits with Liontree CEO R.A. Borkoff for an in-depth conversation about talent's role in the ever-evolving entertainment landscape. They cover everything from Jeremy's start in the proverbial mailroom to his leadership role after 40 years of deal-making and advocacy for some of the biggest stars and properties in Hollywood. Enjoy their chat. Hey everybody, it's Arye, and welcome to another edition of Kindred Cast. Uh, this time we're on location in sunny Los Angeles, actually during Oscar weekend, and I'm sitting here with my friend Jeremy Zimmer. Jeremy, welcome. Thanks for having me. I feel like I've made it to the big time now. Well, you've always been there, especially in this town. <laughs> we'll take this around the world, though. Jeremy, as many of you know, is the co-founder and CEO of United Talent Agency, also known as UTA one of the largest talent agencies here in Hollywood. UTA manages a huge roster of megastars and creative people, including Chris Pratt, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Gwyneth Paltrow, Judd Apatow, Will Ferrell, Post Malone, Seth Rogen, Kevin Hart, Brian Cranston, and the list goes on. And on and on. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Jeremy co-founded UTA in 1991 and has decades of experience as one of Hollywood's leading dealmakers. Prior to joining UTA, Jeremy worked with International Creative Management, ICM, where he led both the motion picture library and motion picture packaging departments. And he started your career at William Morris. In the mailroom. In the mailroom. That's right. And also importantly, you were one of the first in Hollywood to speak out in 2017 against sexism and bad corporate culture when you sent a highly publicized internal memo, which we'll talk about, which heralded the need for inclusiveness, tolerance, and empowerment. Yes. So kudos to you. We'll go through that. And also, importantly, since co-founding UTA, Jeremy, you have led a number of acquisitions that have rapidly expanded and transformed the company over the last few years. That's part of the reason why we wanted to speak today, because it's not only about the core celebrity culture and agency business, but it's also about a business and transformation similar to media businesses exactly. uh, around the world. So thanks for being here. I've always felt that we've had this common connection around how to build companies, how to think about transitioning businesses, how to be innovative and entrepreneurial. And uh, I want to uh, thank you again for having me at your offsite probably five years ago now, speaking to your whole team in Ojai, I believe. Yes, it was an incredible conversation because you gave us a number of insights about where the media business was going, some of which seemed at the time wildly prophetic. Uh, crazy, many of which, yeah, crazy. And many of which have turned out to be true or almost true in a way that I think if we were to sit here today and look at exactly what you said, we'd all go, wow, that was unbelievable. That's nice to hear. Thank you. Yeah. And, um, not the sole reason we're doing the podcast. No, but, but you, you've earned on. your seat, no doubt. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for the forum. So I like to look back before we go forward. Okay. Um, you've been in Hollywood for about 30 years now. Uh, still a young, spry, really, man. really. To be honest, forty. I started in the mailroom at William Morris Agency in 1979. So, what's been the biggest change in this <laughs> culture well, of first Hollywood? Of all, when I started in the mailroom, there was mail. Yeah. So that's a big change right there. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
you know, pretty much everything has changed in terms of the technology, the delivery system, the consumer behavior, and so much hasn't changed in terms of the fundamentals of story, performance, passion, creativity, creativity, and the power of the rare commodity that is talent and creativity. Which is nice to know, but what about the celebrity culture overall? Because it must have been a lot different 40 years ago than it is today. I mean, celebrity culture has changed a lot because there's this whole new kind of celebrity that is so powerful and has such an immediate and strong connection with their fan. And those celebrities are driving a tremendous amount of eyeballs and driving a a tremendous amount of consumer behavior right now. And that's something that we certainly all have to pay attention to and that we in the entertainment industry have to pay attention to, people in the advertising business have to pay attention to, people in the uh, consumer products business have to pay attention to. Well, on one hand, with the technology platforms, the connectivity goes much higher around the world than everyone has access and a sense of familiarity with talent. On the other hand, I've heard some people say that social media platforms and the technology platforms could be the death of the celebrity because it becomes so dilutive where you get so much at you all the time, the scarcity value somehow dissipates somewhat. You know, that's been the common thinking was, oh, you know, you start being on Instagram all the time and that's just going to kill your career. But we haven't really found that to be the case so far. And we see, you know, some of the biggest celebrities or people who have the largest followings on social media right now. The Rock is probably the biggest actor on social media right now. Kevin Hart is close behind. And those guys' careers seem to be booming in a very significant way. And we're also seeing the relationship between a powerful social media following and a powerful music career. So you see the followers, you know, whether it's Ariana Grande or Drake or Post Malone, I mean, DJ Khaled, who we represent, has really built his entire audience through social media. And that's allowed him to become a very powerful producer and music entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And these things seem to go hand in hand as opposed to the conventional wisdom, which was, if you're a real star, you should never be in a commercial because it'll overexpose you and diminish the value of your brand. It seems to be working many times in the other way. Interesting. Does it create more parity where there's now the ability to follow for the general population many more celebrities than before because they can have much more access to different brands around the world? I don't know about parity, but it certainly seems to be stoking a fervor and an appetite for more. Mm -hmm. We don't seem to be at a place where people are like, oh, God, if I see another Kardashian post, I'm going to throw my phone away. It doesn't seem that that's happening. Sometimes I wish it would. I have four daughters, and I spend a good deal of time staring at the top of their heads while they're staring at their phones, and it can be really frustrating. But it doesn't seem to be abating right now. Yeah. The brands in the form of celebrities or your clients in many different fashions – now have the opportunity to be on these platforms, whether it's Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or Tencent or anywhere around the world, does that change the way you package the entertainment and change the way that you think about content vis-a-vis those platforms versus the traditional broadcasters and cable channels and other forms of media? There's many more choices and ways that TV shows and movies can be 
packaged and put together and presented. Mm -hmm. Some things are right for some platforms and not right for others. The great thing about the streaming platforms, they provide more freedom in terms of the kind of content that can be created. Mm -hmm. Broadcast television is still a very powerful medium for the right kind of show. Mm -hmm. So I think part of what our expertise has to be is in guiding and shaping the programming and guiding and shaping where those shows end up and and what the right format for that show can be. We always talk about a renaissance of the demand for high-quality content and shows, and everyone has access to so much great content today. So as we've seen this sort of balloon coming in this moment, how has UTA been positioned for that, and how are you changing the game as you go from the perspective of this company that you run? Well, I think what we're all trying to do is help shape the programming and spend more time in the careful packaging of programming so that we have as many choices and maximum leverage when we do end up selecting our broadcast partner, whether that's a streamer, a cable channel, or a traditional broadcast partner. It's less about, oh, here's an idea, go pitch the idea, let them write it, let the studio, you know, let them figure out whether they want to make it or not. We're trying to spend more time putting together things that are undeniable and by doing that, enhancing the value so that our clients can extract maximum value when we do sell it. Is an example of that what you did last year, I believe, where you jumped into the TV production business by partnering with the studio behind Netflix's House of Cards. Yeah, we partnered last year in a JV with MRC, actually with the parent of MRC, which is a company called Valence. And we formed a JV with them where the idea of that is to give our clients access and opportunity to this JV, which would have enhanced economics and a lot of creative freedom that wouldn't be found in a more traditional studio setting. Our clients are looking to us, we feel, to provide them with more opportunities, better opportunities, the creative freedom that they can get from Netflix and the economic opportunity that they can get out of a more traditional model. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to figure out the best way to create those opportunities for our clients. Do you think that you'll be headfirst into content production more and more as an owner or a partner in a JV structure with other content production entities or shows? I don't think we're going to be headfirst unless it turns out to really be the right thing and the best thing. Yeah, There's a lot of friction right now around this subject because the Writers Guild is very concerned about what it means for the long-term life of the writer. There's no doubt in my mind that this is a great option for writers, but I'm also conscious of and sensitive to the concerns that are being raised. But where is the tension? The tension is with the unions? The tension is with the unions. It's really with the Writers Guild of America who are having a fundamentally difficult idea with the fact that at any point in time, an agent could be a buyer. The level of conflict that spurs for them is a difficult thing for them to swallow. Mm -hmm. What we're trying to say is that there are some inherent conflicts that exist within our business, and you're better to be on the right side of it than not. And work together to leave them. And work together. And as long as we're transparent and thoughtful and real about what the conflicts are and how we see and bring in lawyers, et cetera, so that it's all done in, in the open, we think that that sort of mitigates against the conflict. But people are very nervous about it right now. But I've always thought the UTA was among one of the more entrepreneurial of the agencies. And credit to you for how you constantly think about the business. And do you have a better shot at growing around some of these issues 
because you're actively thinking about it versus a CA or a William Morris or an ICM where obviously they're all in the same boat. But how is UTA under your leadership being built from here? And how do you think well, about it? Well, we're really, the focus for us is to try to think about where the business is going and anticipate what opportunities could exist for our clients in the near future or future, and how do we build the capabilities ahead of the opportunity? Mm-hmm. So when a client wakes up and says, you know, I'd like to do one of these podcasts, we say, great, we have a fully built out podcast division that can help you choose the best podcast producer, the best podcast network, figure out what the advertising partnership should be, et cetera. Before a client even really knows that they can do a podcast, we've got a division capable of executing on one. I think of a lion tree in a similar way. We look at ourselves as mirroring the fundamental trends in the broader industry mm-hmm. and requiring ourselves, putting pressure on ourselves to make investments right. that will see ahead of time where the industry is going and put some capital at risk around building different business lines around that. And if we invest ahead of our clients based on our thematics, then they should be obviously staying with us in different ways as we grow. And it's a very organic relationship between clients and our business and our products and services. Sounds like the same thing for you and your talent. Yeah, we've always sort of said, gosh, it seems like this is going to be an opportunity that's going to really develop. We should put some time, energy, and resources into it so that we can present it to clients as an option before they have to ask us, hey, how do I do this? We can say, you know, we're spending some time in this area and this could be something that would make sense for you. Let's take a look at it. It's a competitive business like every business in yes. the or every business these days in this country and obviously in most industries, especially this time of the cycle. What is UTA's differentiation? Because you're starting to see a divergent paths for different agencies. Obviously, you have Ari and William Morris, Endeavor. You have a CAA, ICM. Everyone's looking at expanding because it wants to stay still. Where does UTA fit? But what do you consider to be your differentiation? The key differentiation for us is we try to differentiate. We try to expand into areas where we feel we can provide real value to clients. If we're going to start a new business, if we're going to build a business, we want to try and build it in a way that our clients can really participate. That it's not just something that lives over here where no, you know, it's very easy for me to understand how a client can benefit from our ownership of a influencer management agency or how our clients can benefit from our ownership of of speakers bureau because those are all areas and avenues that many of the clients are going to want to take advantage of. Yeah, stick pretty close to the core as you go. Try to create more value and more service for the clients. Yeah. Well, then when you think about growth and you think about building, you think about that as an organic path and an inorganic path. You've always boasted a bit about UTA being a private company yes. and having the benefits of being a private company yes. and not being owned by a private equity firm or being public or even having a lot of outside financing. Yeah. Well, um, I was really wrong when I was boasting <laughs> about that. <laughs> it, you know, it sounds good at the time. Yeah, you know? It was the right thing to say at the time. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I say that we're joking because last year, you did, on behalf of UTA, accept some private money from InvestCorp and PSP Investments, a Canadian firm, for the first time. It's been reported that that deal was done at about a $750 million valuation for the company, which has upwards of $350 million of revenue right. overall. So what caused the change? What was the impetus behind the decision? It was actually the second time we'd taken the money. The first time we took in money, we took in money from a private individual, Jeff Ubbin, 
who actually is an investor and runs a significant fund called Value Act, but he made this investment privately. And through that experience with Jeff, we were able to stimulate some of our early acquisitions. And it became clear that there was just more to do mm-hmm. and more opportunity out there and more to explore. We spent a lot of time really thinking about it and decided that this would be the right time to go out and raise some outside capital to continue to drive our expansion. To go faster, basically. To go faster and uh, take advantage of what is a really robust and interesting and complicated time in our industry. So when you now manage the company with this backdrop of being well capitalized and having outside partners now, how do you evaluate opportunities and deals? Do you think about esports, for example, as a way as a... Yeah, so we bought an esports agency last year that represents esports athletes and influencers. Mm -hmm. That's been a really interesting acquisition. It's given us a lot of insights into that business and where that business is going, as well as some opportunities. It also generated some opportunities for us with clients. So we represent Marshmallow, one of the biggest DJs in the world, who ended up doing a performance inside of Fortnite. And we were able to use some of the connectivity that we have from our esports division to help generate that opportunity. Interesting. And is gaming overall, broadly speaking, an area of focus for you? We actually have a really great gaming division. Yeah. It's run by a fellow named Ophir Lupu, and he represents a number of significant developers. Uh-huh. And it's something we're really excited about. We've done a couple of great transactions in the space, but we haven't figured out exactly what the next move is there. Got it. Have you spent the capital yet, or are you just at the beginning stages of that? Just at the beginning stages. A lot of that. dry powder. Now, tell me about UTA Ventures, because I think you've established a ventures business yes. that has made, I think, investments in 30 different companies. Yes. So when did you do that, and what was the impetus behind it? I think we started it maybe 40 years ago yeah. and started making a series of small investments in just interesting companies where we thought we could add some value. We had a pretty strong set of requirements around there had to be a credited lead investor. Uh-huh. There had to be some thesis we could make about how we could be additive to the company. There were those kinds of conditions upon which we would invest. And we've made 30 investments. We've had a couple of companies disappear. We've had one or two successful exits. And a number of the companies are doing very, very well. Interesting. And it's also probably a learning exercise, right? It's been a really good learning exercise, and it's been a great thing to bring other partners into so they can start to be part of the ecosystem outside of their day-to-day business. So we've sort of rotated partners in and out of the investment committee where they get a taste of and get exposure to opportunities they wouldn't see otherwise. Yeah. How are you as a CEO? Do you feel like you're a good CEO? I'm the best. No. (laughs) I, mean, I, was you know, I think I'm really manager. good at some things, and I think I have some development areas. I'm not afraid of risk, which is, I think, a really good quality in a CEO, but I probably should get a little more careful as we get bigger. I've always been very intuitive about people that I hire and really believe that I can hire well, and I feel very confident and comfortable with that. I think that's a good quality. I think I've been right more than I've been wrong, and I'm really passionate. You know, I love my company. I really love it. I look forward to coming here every day. We close at Christmas time for two weeks, and I always walk around that last day before we close, and I'm a little sad. Like, I'm going to miss the place and miss the people, and I have a real emotional connection to the company. And you have a 1,000 people here at the company and around the world? Yes. We started with about 30 people, 
and grown very quickly since I've become CEO. When I became CEO about seven years ago, I think we had about 330 employees and now we have a thousand. We've made a number of acquisitions. It's been a really exciting time for the company and it's been a great time in my own life. I'm reading a book now as a, a fellow executive about scale. It's actually called Scale by Jeffrey West. And it has to do with how you not only scale businesses, but how you look at the longevity of businesses potentially versus things like cities and organisms and different parts of our world. And why does a human live 70, 80, 120 years versus companies that live a lot shorter than that? Mm-hmm. And cities live a lot longer than all those things. And it's obviously uh, about learning how to build a business and how to scale a business. Does that frighten you about how do you really think about the duration of your tenure here and when you are going to step it up and grow repeatedly and try to scale UTA from here? Or the is it more organic? Is, most things don't frighten me. As I think about growing the business and the business enduring, I think a lot about succession because I've been doing this for a long time. And one of the things Jeff Ubbin has been so great with me about is talking about succession and planning for succession and not seeing succession as some awful ending, but as this really exciting transition in life. So uh, for me, the most important thing about looking at the duration and durability of the business is really being able to plan for the future and being open and real about how I need to develop my team underneath me and hand over responsibility and opportunity so that other people can grow and be ready for the challenge to run the business. Is that anytime soon? I think I'll be here talking about 95, 100, <laughs> okay. and then I'll happily move on. I want to go back to this letter because you wrote this internal memo in the fall of 2017 where you said, quote, go to your leaders and mentors, go to our human resources team. There are always things we could do better to learn and grow in our choices and behavior. But fear and silence is never the answer. You will be heard, end quote. What moved you to speak out? What was that about? There's been two times where I've written those kind of emails to a company. And one was around when Trump first started the migrant ban. And one of our clients, Asghar Farhadi, was not allowed to come into the country to be there for the Academy Awards. And so I canceled our Academy Awards party. Instead, we had a rally. And then this time when it was just, we were living in this unbelievable horror of Harvey Weinstein and what he had done and how he had treated people. And suddenly it all came to life, this woman's march, and it all came to life like the way that people had been treated and the fear with which women were living. And I just said, we want to be an organization where people aren't afraid. If you're afraid, if someone's not treating you right, if you feel you've been persecuted or assaulted or disregarded or disenfranchised, let's talk about it. I want this to be the best company to work for, certainly in our industry, if not in the world. And it can't be that if people are scared, if people don't feel safe. The number one thing I can provide for my family at home, my wife and my four daughters, is they feel safe. No one's worrying, "Uh uh-oh, dad's going to come home. What kind of mood is he going to be in? Mm -hmm. This is my work family. I want them to feel the same way. Mm -hmm. How do you define the culture of UTA now? How has it changed? Well, I'm probably not completely objective, but I think we have an amazing culture. I think people love to work here. And I think people feel empowered and emboldened. My responsibility as a CEO is to be able to say those things and then make sure that we back them up in our actions. And I think we do. 
You know, I think we have an amazing human resources team. I think we have an amazing DNI team, diversity and inclusivity. Mm-hmm. I think we've made these things big priorities. I think we've learned a lot in a very short period of time about how we see the world. You know, and I know that my own lens was much more myopic than it should have been. And I've had it expanded mightily in the last couple of years. Yeah, that is, I think, the defining and most important trait for a CEO or an overseer of a business, or as you call it, a family at work, which is the ability to self-correct and grow and make adjustments perpetually, right? That requires a lot of reflection, a lot of authenticity, and a lot of uh, honesty with yourself. That's what I've always liked about you. I get an absolute sense that you are authentic and you're looking at yourself. You have a great sense of humor about yourself. You have a great joie de vivre. You love what you're doing. And I love that energy. And I think that's a big part of why you're so successful. I appreciate it. It's a constant effort. It, uh, believe me, I it's know effortless it. effortless and it's a constant effort. <laughs> I believe me, I know it. Yeah. I remember a story when you were seeking advice not to go into a private territory, but you came to meet me one morning and I was housing at the uh, rooftop of one of these nearby hotels. <laughs> and I had a, like, a little seating area up top and you came to meet me early in the morning. And you sat down and, you know, you obviously knew that we're in the advisory business. And you sat down and you put $100 on the table and said, I need some advice. Right. (laughs) And I left it there and I said, you think that's the rate? Well, the advice was was worth a lot more than the $100. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I hope I returned it to you. So last question, when you look out 10, 20 years, anything around media has to do with technology and innovation. We talk about things like virtual reality and artificial intelligence and avatars. So put your mind into it or your successor's head into a 20-year into the future play, and it's almost the year 2040. How much of the talent that UTA is going to be managing will be actual people versus some kind of a robot or avatar like Lil (laughs) McQuella? People like that. I don't believe that the robot or the avatar will be the talent. (laughs) Okay, that'll be the instrument of the talent. The product. Any more than the canvas is the artist. Mm -hmm. Any more than the disc, which is no longer a disc, is the musician. Then the instrument is the musician. So I don't believe that will be the talent. I think the talent will be the mind of the creative person and his ability to bring what's in his mind out to life. That's what creativity is, and robots are what machines are. I don't believe that we will cross that divide. I think there's a real difference. And it's important for me to believe that because what we all have to do here, what we do is we represent artists. And I think the hardest thing in the world to do is to say, I want to be an artist. I want to be a singer. I want to be a guitarist. I want to be a painter. I want to be a writer. Think about the odds of success. They're astronomical. It's like saying... I want to be an astronaut. It's impossible. So the people who do that and venture out to do that, there's a lot of strength and a lot of nobility in that. And I think our job representing those people has a lot of nobility as a result. To facilitate it. Nothing's impossible, really, right? Yeah. And our job is to look in somebody's eye and believe that they can do that and then to help them make it happen. So what's the metric? If I'm tracking you today, five years from now, I've been sent by Invest Corporate PSP to track a return on their investment and the success of UTA under your oversight. What's the metric you're thinking about if you have to isolate one or two? 
I'm sure many of the people listening to this will roll their eyes and go, oh boy, more of that. But I think the metric will be, is the culture of the company still as powerful and palpable when we have 3,000 people as it is when we have 1,000 people? And that's a means to an end. Is growth the metric? Is financial strength the metric? Is I think growth, financial strength, and I think being able to continue to provide a great place to work for the people who work here so they can buy houses, have families, build lives. I mean, to me, that's what's exciting. We have a very important mailroom training program here. More than 40 of my partners started in the mailroom. So kids who were my assistant 20 years ago are now having babies and houses and stuff like that. That, to me, is the metric of success. Being How about able to market continue share? that. How about market share? Do you want to win? I think I have won. I think winning is being here. I don't think there's a scorecard. I don't think the game ends one day, oh, one, you know, when we exit the business, is that the day the game ends? When does the game end? So there's no winning or losing if there's no end. I don't really think about it that way. I try to think about it in a sense of a continuum and what you provide for the people that you take care of. You bought and you captured CAA agents last year. You right. went into the marketplace and you attracted talent in your core business here to build market share. Right. To get your view the best of the best to expand. Right. You're in expansion mode. Right. Why are you doing that? You like the business. Yeah. You want to double down. I want to make more money. I want my colleagues to make more money. And I want to be stronger and more capable so that our colleagues can make more money and our clients can continue to thrive. Yeah. And you see a white space. Yeah. I think that you see an opportunity for UTA. Yes. To be entrepreneurial and take advantage of the fact that my competitors are looking in other directions. Correct. And so that's really why we're having this conversation. Right. Because I think everyone is doing different things which are motivated by different end goals. Scale is one. Diversification is another. Diversification is another way of saying... Diversification is not really an end goal, though. It's, it's a means to an end. Or it's Just... running away from a business into other businesses. Right. right? You're not running from anything. No. You're adding. Yeah. And you're doing it in a um, clever way. Well, thank you. Yeah. Any predictions for the media industry from your lens? I think that this next period we're going into is going to be an incredibly robust period with a lot of intense competition around the best of the best. For talent and the people who represent talent, it's going to be an amazing time as long as we're smart and thoughtful and stay one step ahead of these platforms who are very, very smart and thoughtful. They're smart, they're thoughtful, they're large. And even from a media perspective, they're consolidating. So there are yes. fewer platforms out there. Exactly. But the platforms that are out there are so well-funded and so aggressive that to be a wholesaler in that environment can be a great business to be in. And ultimately, it's about the differentiated quality of the content, which goes all the way back to the quality of the talent. Yep. I mean, there's more shows than ever on television. There's more great shows than ever on television, but on a proportionate basis there's still only so many good things. Mm -hmm. Thankfully. Thankfully. That's why I get to stick around. Yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate your being here. I appreciate I, you being here. I really enjoyed the conversation. <laughs> yeah, thanks for hosting me in your office. My pleasure. I look forward to seeing you progress and seeing you win at the perpetual game. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Jeremy. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. 
You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.